0: Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for anyone in the Australian financial planning ecosystem with a focus on life risk insurance. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I'm a life risk insurance specialist, and you're listening to My Risk Advisor. Hey there, welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. Today with me, I have an industry veteran, Guy Mankey. He's been around for 43 years, so I get ask him all the lessons that he learnt and all the mistakes that hopefully I can avoid. So I know you'll get a lot of value out of this, so get stuck right into it. Thanks for joining me today, guys. So to get started, help me understand kind of your journey and advice today. What have you been doing? What are you going to be doing? Help me understand your journey.
1: Well, I started 43 years ago, actually 43 years ago, about a week ago, Um, 1979. Um, Fell into the industry by accident, which is the way most people started back then. Um, Probably knew I wanted to, to market or sell something, but I didn't know what. And basically insurance just fell into my lap. Um, the one thing that I was told when I started was if I can, if I can actually get good at, 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 selling insurance, I can basically sell anything. So I thought it was a pretty good grounding. You know, I was 22 years old. I hadn't gone to university, so gave it a shot. I guess it was a, <laughs> a long shot.
0: But, yeah. But, and how yeah. did you start? Who did you start with?
1: Um, I started with legal in general. I'd I'd gone, I'd got fed up with life, basically. I I went up to um, Queensland and I worked on a tourist boat for um, about eight months. And what I didn't realise was that 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 was a fantastic education because my role on the boat was basically looking after people who were approaching retirement or already retired. And and I just, I got pretty good at, at figuring out how to communicate um, when I came back, a friend sort of was a bit astounded by, I guess, the maturity that I'd managed to achieve in those eight months. And unbeknownst to me, he was a, a guy at Legal and General who was recruiting and, um, Two days later, I had an interview, and I guess a week after that, I was signed up. Um, but it was pretty unique in those days because most people didn't start until they were in their thirties. They were they were looking for people who had established contacts and who had some life experience. So, you know, I was one of I think only four or five people that LNG ever recruited at that young age.
0: Yeah, and and the the philosophy around that is they've got they've got people that they know and who they can sell insurance to, but twenty two year olds yeah. don't.
1: Well, I guess the other thing is, you know, when you when you're 22, 27 year olds look at you and go, "Why would I buy off a child?" Yeah. Um, and they're not your ideal client anyway. So, I, I got to say, I went into it a lot more um, with with an attitude about learning more than I got into it with an attitude about, you know, how many policies can I sell? And um, there's there's no secret. I, I'm I'm a huge fan of Million Dollar Round Table, and I can still remember a A past president, um, Scott Brennan, in his acceptance speech years ago said, you know, when I first entered this industry and started my decade of poverty, um, and and that really rang true to me because Mm. for at least the first 10 years, um, you know, I was earning a lot less than all of my mates, uh, but I was learning lots.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting concept. About um, at the start of a career, don't just try and chase the the dollars and the cents at the very beginning. Just chase the learning and the growth, and, and you know, making sure you're partnering with a firm or a business or whatever you're doing in life. But just think about, you know, how do I learn as much as possible? And I mean, that resonates a lot with me. That's kind of what I did um, when I was young, um, just trying to learn as much as possible.
1: Yeah, I was always told if you get good at this job the dollars will look after themselves. And mm. and I think that's just sensational advice. Um, and it's true. Too many people, you know, it's 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 that old boxing analogy where, you know, you get knocked down seven times, you've got to get up eight. And, mm. and when I look at some of the really talented people who quit before they just manage to hang in long enough to be successful, it, it's just not funny.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and the other thing you said about people not wanting to buy off people um, who were young, um, I still get that. I'm 35 and I still get that, that, that response from people. Why would, why would I buy off a 22-year-old? Yeah, well,
1: I got around it by saying, yeah, you know, you can buy off someone your own age, but they're going to be retired and you're still going to need advice. Whereas mm. if you go with someone like me, you know, I'll still be working 20 years after you've... After you've got no more need for me. So what you're mm-hmm. getting with me is someone who who you can associate with through your entire
0: um, working life and, and for yeah, well, for the it. for the next forty three years. I bet you yeah. probably weren't saying <laughs> that as, as a twenty two year old. Yeah, exactly. Um awesome. And so and so that's how you started. Uh, just give us a really quick overview of like where you moved and, and how you moved from there.
1: Um, look, I was lucky to start with legal and general because back in those days it was pretty much a tight agency. Everyone came in through a tight agency. Um, you had your AMPs and your national mutuals, which were almost cults. You know, they didn't like their advisors talking to people from other insurance companies. Whereas legal in general was always pretty open to the idea that if you're gonna if you're gonna grow and, and be as good as you can be, you really need to to broaden your horizons and talk to a lot of people both in and outside the industry. Um, so I was with them I I guess on and off for about seven or eight years. Um, L&G also had a really good philosophy in as much as, as long as they tended to get the bulk of the competitive business, they were happy. They realized they had some holes in their product range um, and they were perfectly content for you to go outside um, their products where you could justify that it was in the best interest of the client. So, okay, so you know, here we understand 35 that. So years I- ago,
0: Sorry, yeah, so sorry, I'll just cut in there, help me understand with with legal in general, I wasn't around forty five year forty three years ago, so i don't understand, but um it wasn't the only product you could sell. you could sell an a and p policy, could you back then?
1: well, no one did because they
0: weren't in my humble yeah, opinion. So, yeah, so yeah, maybe, maybe not A&B, but, but you could, yeah. you could sell a, another insurer's Yeah, um,
1: and, and the journey with income protection is really interesting, and I don't think a lot of guys who have probably even been in the business 20 years understand. When I, when I first started, an income protection policy had a definition of disability that said, we will pay you if you can't do all the duties of your occupation or any occupation to which you're reasonably suited after two years. Right, so it was it reverted to an any occupation definition after two years, and it was can't do all duties. And then I think it was Friends Provident came out with can't do. Oh no, Friends Provident first of all said um, we will extend the own occupation for the duration of your contract, so they weren't going to kick you into the, off claims because mm-hmm. they thought you could be a you know a call center guy. Um, and then I think it was. Um, I can't remember which company it was, but but the next company then said one duty, you know, hmm. and, and it, it sort of snowballed. It just got better,
0: and, and, and we're now yeah. we're back we're back to where we were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and yeah, we'll. And so after for, after yeah, yeah. Well, we try not to get too political here, but yeah. after legal in general, what what was your journey? So we've still got another,
1: um, you know, thirty
0: five years.
1: Yeah, well, LNG was was dismantling the their their internal advisor setup. It, look, that might have been ten years in. Um, I'd become pretty good mates with some people outside LNG because I'd been doing this, you know, stuff with friends and and a couple of other companies where it was required. Um, And they had master agencies set up. Uh, I'd met a guy on my first day at Legal & General, um, Graham Fox, and and Foxy was on his way out as I was on my way in. Um, But we were both pretty hooked in through sport. And when he left two weeks later, we stayed in touch. And he was sort of the conduit that got me involved with these other things. Then when Legal & General was shutting down they're in-house force, Foxy sort of said to me, along with a couple of other guys, "Look, let's go and just do a, a, a setup where we all pay our own costs. We act independently, but you know, we 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 help each other where we can, both financially and and just in the way we go about business. So mm. we set up packs, um, and and I, I don't know. I guess that was 27, 28 years ago,
0: and that's uh, the business you're in today.
1: Yeah." I'm the only one left. Uh, One of the guys left very quickly. Then Graham, about 15 years ago, developed not Hodgkin's lymphoma and he retired. Uh, And then my other partner, John Gale, um, unfortunately developed lung cancer about 11 years ago Um, and he gave it away. So, you know, I've been last man standing for over a decade now.
0: And so, talking to, you know, younger advisors, you know, just starting their career, what's your kind of advice for them?
1: Oh, number one is patience. Um, you know, you, you, if you come in expecting, I don't know of a single person who came into this business and set the world on fire. I just don't know. Sorry, I know a few crooks who did, but I don't know anyone who, who legitimately was building a business, um, honestly, you know, with a view to the future. You've got to be patient. And the second thing is, you know, you've got to commit to, to I guess, wisdom, wisdom. Um, I've got a screensaver amongst others on my computer that that says we're all drowning in knowledge and, and gasping for but wisdom. And and I just think that's so true. You know, when you look at our education system today, it's all about compliance, it's about product, it's and, and none of that is relevant in my mind to becoming a really good advisor. What you've got to do is use that knowledge um and 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 learn how to think. You know, we, I think our industry is similar to society where we're almost discouraged these days on thinking. Um, you know, there's a great quote from, what's his name, um, Degrassi, where he says, you know, society is in real trouble when our educators teach us what to think mm. rather than how to think. And, and I think the biggest change probably that I've seen within the industry is that, when I was at LNG, I was really encouraged not only by legal in general but by the advisors around me to look for better ways to do things.
0: And so, and so how do we do that? If, if I'm, an, you know, I've got a business, I've got um, several staff working for me yeah. as, as advisors, how do I go about doing that, you know, given the compliance regime that we live in but right. how do I provide them freedom? How do I think about allowing them to teach them not what to think but how to think?
1: Look, you've you've still got to do your compliance and you've still got to know your products. There's no question about that. But for me, look, uh, straight out, NDRT has has just made the world a difference.
0: And so why, I guess? Yeah, help me understand that.
1: Yeah, well, you meet guys from all around the world. And and while we've all got different solutions to what are similar products, um, we've all got the same – problems and our clients have got the same problems um, but different parts of the world dif- um, deal with them differently um, advisors from around the world have come up with different solutions um, to the same problems um, we we through Ellen through MDRT you know I, I think you learn to start thinking laterally rather than looking at things and simply accepting them because you're told to accept them. And look, a a good example of something like that, um, I do a lot of speaking for MDRT at their annual meetings. So in the US, in Canada, I'm one of their go-to speakers. Um, About, gosh, I guess 15, 16 years ago, I was asked to give a presentation at the AFA conference. And I spoke about, an opportunity at the time that I'd, I'd realised existed. You know, I, I genuinely believe that our job is to help people get insurance legitimately. No, you know, I'm not talking about fraud or anything. You play by the rules, but our job is to get people insured, not to help insurance companies figure out ways to say no. Um, I looked at, at, when I started writing bigger cases, I quickly realised that while the insurance companies... Um, aggregate sums assured on both existing and new business um, for financial evidence, they didn't do it for medical evidence. And it had sort of become accepted where, you know, if you had $2 bucks worth of cover with Company A and you wanted another quarter of a million dollars, well, if I put that extra quarter back with Company A, they'd be medically underwriting you as if you were applying for $2.25 million cover. So there'd be all of these Tests, you know, in those days, exercising ECGs, some tough tests, all of which are designed to allow an insurance company to smile sweetly and say, oh, we've found something here we don't really want you." Um, whereas if you put that extra quarter of a million with a different company, they just looked at it as if it was just a quarter of a million dollar application They'd go by the personal statement, they might send out a, a PMAR, but probably not. So, you know, you wouldn't build on existing large amounts of cover with the same company because it just it, it increased the chances that your client was going to get declined or loaded. And then I started looking into it a little deeper and what I realised was that that wasn't just for increases that was that was for all new business so you know i i I remember the first time i tried it out i had a doctor who who wanted about four million dollars worth of cover and i actually advised him to take four one million dollar policies with four different companies because at that point he didn't even need a medical um and and you know he was really grateful um we used to actually offer companies Um, access to clients' Medicare records at the point of underwriting. Um, And again, this was another thing that I realised. You know, if companies are going to ask for that stuff at claim time, I wanted them to get that information up front so that we could find out if there was a problem that hadn't been disclosed either inadvertently or, or whatever. Let's face it, when someone says, yeah, you can have access to Medicare records, it's pretty obvious they're not trying to commit fraud. Um, So, by having four $1 million policies, as I say, four personal statements, more work for me, pain in the butt, actually, but he suddenly had his $4 million worth of cover that was underwritten pretty easily. Now, we found out a year and a half later that there was an underlying condition that he knew nothing about. And and it wasn't life-threatening, but it was enough to absolutely belt up any application that he might ever have for insurance. So with him, because we spread it out, um, he was underwritten at ordinary rates where he might have even got a decline. Now, Mm. I got up at an AFA conference and shared that story with advisors. Well, within 15 minutes of getting off stage, I'd had three CEOs tell me to keep my mouth shut. Um, and never talk of this again. Um, I had one guy who basically threatened to kick me out of the business if I ever publicised it as an idea. And, you know, that was one of the reasons, and and the AFA, I've never spoken at the AFA since because when I first started, the AFA was an advisor um, forum association run by advisors, whereas once they kind of expanded out and they started employing people and they started relying heavily on sponsorship from insurance companies, they, there was a little bit of a dilemma there about what they shared and what they didn't. So, yeah. you know, it was an example of, of thinking laterally. Um, all the rate books made it really, or you know, all the advisor manuals made it really clear, we will underwrite on the business with our company. It's just well, no, that's right. I mean, sure and, and that's
0: where it's yeah. You know, a lot of your examples are really interesting in today's market because you know today's market when you're applying for cover, they ask where where else do you have cover. Um, so those kind of strategies make it much yeah, more but, difficult. But, but they
1: still don't add that existing cover to their underwriting regime unless there's something that they can see that's a problem.
0: Yeah, yeah. But they'll they'll financial they'll make sure they can financially, financially. you know and justify.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I have no and, problem with financial because financial is financial and you don't want people hmm. insuring for things they don't need to cover. But, yeah, yeah. But I'm not going to ever help. You know, I, I look at it, there are three entities involved in any insurance transaction. There's the client, there's the insurance company, there's you, right? I have always, from day one, said as long as I look after the client, I will get looked after. So to me, yeah, clients that's, always be number one. Is,
0: it is interesting kind of from a, from a philosophical point of view and let's get it like a little bit high level here but like at, I, I understand and, and agree that we need to be looking after our clients but I would, I would ask you the question, what are your thoughts on someone saying at the end of the day, our job is also to protect the pool, not to protect the insurer and no. make sure the insurer is getting the best. No, I, don't, why, I don't agree with that at all. So the reason why someone would say that is, and and to be honest, I kind of think about that is is protecting the pool, um, because because at the end of the day, insurance at its core is a group of people coming together and saying, "Here's a bucket in the middle of the village. Can everyone put some money in here every week or every month? When someone's ill, they can pull the money out um, when they when they're ill or injured, and so that's what the insurance companies are." I, Totally get they're a for profit business and they're trying to make money, but at the end of the day, it is kind of a socialist system, um, whereby it it, it's it the it's. village putting money in a bucket. So, if if me as one household in that village is trying to go uh, and not game the system, because I'm not saying that you did anything wrong or 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 bad, um, but it's just like you know, at the end of the day. Is it the villagers' job to also protect the, the bucket to make sure it's sustainable so there is money to pull out? Yeah, look, that's
1: one I wrestle with too. I, I, I've been saying for the last 30 years that as far as I'm concerned, you know, the insurance industry is the only form of socialism that works mm. um, and, and, and it's, it's true. You know, it, it does work on that basis. Um, I also believe though that the insurance companies, um, you know, the insurance company's primary objective is to make profits for their shareholders. That's, that's the law. You know, that's yeah. what a company has to do. Yeah. Um, when I have a look at, at the problems that have bestowed the industry over the last four or five years in terms of premiums and things, while it's never been sort of put out first and foremost, if you talk to people in the know, most of them will cheerfully admit that, especially with income protection, the biggest problem that, that income protection's had is um, that the actuaries totally, totally, totally got it wrong years and years ago when they projected that they'd be able to continue to earn 6% a year on their investments um, as they were coming into a period where they were lucky to earn one or two. Um, you know, and, and there are a lot of guys who privately admit that who will never publicly admit it. But But the simple fact is the insurance companies can change their pools at any point, and they've demonstrated very strongly over the last couple of years that they're willing to do that.
0: And, and, and help me understand, what, when you say change their pools, you mean change their premiums? Like, yeah. Because that's, that's the mechanism that they have, really. Um, but again, if you, if you talk about it as that, that analogy of a village, it's really the village saying, actually, this pot of money is starting to run out. Yeah. Let's put a bit more money in, team. Yeah, we yeah, haven't Cool.
1: We that's haven't got nice. enough food in the fridge. You guys have got to mm. go out and, you know, kill a few more mammoths. Well, yeah. that's what insurance companies have been doing. But, uh, you know, 20 years ago when people were asking me about level premiums, um, I was saying I, I can't buy in because all you had to do was look at the numbers to realise that they were unsustainable. You know, they, if, if you looked at the numbers closely, you could realize that they weren't going to be able to sustain those pools with 58-year-olds paying the rates that 35-year-olds were meant to be paying. Um, You know, the insurance companies, I've had actuaries over the years tell me that insurance is actuarially calculated so that people dump it when they're most likely to claim because it gets really expensive. Well, that defense for the pool is eliminated when you get level premiums.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's re- it's really interesting. I mean, look, I I love talking about this stuff. I geek out over this, and and hopefully the listeners will as well. But because yeah. because listeners who have been listening for a while, I recommend level premiums, and I still do it. And and the reason being is because um, I understand re rates will come, and I and I articulate that at the very beginning. I personally have level premiums. Um, and the reason why we still recommend it for, and and our client base are very young as well, so they're very young, so um, that that changes the game a lot, 100%, and hundred percent. And we've we've got internally, we've got like once they're over basically thirty five, then it's kind of game over for level yeah. premiums. Um, so so we got we got metrics and all these things that we're. At the end of the day, we've got a philosophy that we that we are comfortable with, um, but a, a lot of my philosophy is at the end of the day we can't predict health, and so that's the difficult thing with yeah. with the ability. But but just from an, a dollars and cents point of view um, and an actuarial point of view, now I'm not a statistician i'm like i'm i can i use a calculator a lot i can tell you that um and so but but in terms of the the length of time someone's going to hold a policy on a level versus a stepped policy because it's not just at cancellation that sorry it's not just prior to claim where you know 50 mid 50s where stepped gets cancelled it's every three or four years when we're chasing a a better premium
1: I, I don't disagree with the under 35s.
0: You know, I, I think there is a
1: really valid case because if if you're buying your cover at 28, well, you know, by the time you're 45, you're broken even. So so that's a fair call. And, and you know, please don't get me wrong, but, but when you're talking to a 45-year-old, um, you know, life insurance, for instance, uh, I believe, and, and I've said it for 30 years, the cost of life insurance was always going to continue to come down. Our life insurance is ridiculously expensive compared to um comparative products around the world um that's the reality and and those other places are making money so and and god i remember 35 years ago an actuary telling me that that our life insurance is is the profit center for 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 the insurance companies so but but your need for life insurance diminishes right there's no question you're 45 i mean
0: theoretically that that's all theoretical because because the other thing to do with it is our debt levels as Australians is increasing oh, and oh. and the older we're getting the more debt we're getting into like this is why i I totally agree with you, and 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 this isn't a discussion step or level, but like, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to use data to kind of think about how as advisors, how do we think? Um, and if we if we're reasonable, it's documented. Then you know, you talk to ten different advisors, you'll come up with fifteen different kind of what's right and, and what's wrong. And the bastards are always going to judge you with perfect hindsight. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. That's and so. The but, and but one thing I, guess, I think about when it comes to insurance is like statistically speaking and historically speaking, we're in more debt. Uh, you know, older Australians are in more debt than they've ever been ever in the history. And so it's, it's kind of theoretically we buy a house at, you know, 30, 40, however old and we pay off the debt. No, we buy new bigger houses. We, get, we buy bigger cars and, and so like in reality we're not paying off debt.
1: My practical experience because I reduce a lot of, clients life insurance if you've got a 45 year old maybe with a couple of five-year-old kids you know decent mortgage they certainly haven't reached their their income earning potential at this point um, maybe a non-working wife you know obviously there are more needs if that's there but but the reality is by the time that 45 year olds 60 the kids are 20 now, if they're not out of their hair financially, they're bloody close. You know, my daughter's now six, uh, twenty-one. She's about to turn twenty-one. Um, I've gone from paying forty thousand dollars a year in school fees to paying a six and a half thousand dollar uni fee. Um, so, you know, if you've got a couple of kids, she's
0: twenty-one. She could pay her own uni fees. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: what's going Thanks on here? mum and dad. Yeah, <laughs> um, we we well, sorry, we're supporting her on a, on a passion project rather than a sensible one. Um, but that's <laughs> right. I, I, I
0: did a passion project and then, <laughs> and then went into financial planning. So yeah, um, but but you know the need
1: to cover off on the kids um, diminishes. Um, yes, maybe at fifty or at fifty you know they get a bigger house and mortgage grows up but but they've also reduced their mortgage substantially in the original place in the meantime realistically debt levels are higher at older ages than they ever were in the past but but they still tend to come down as you start approaching retirement it's not to say there won't be some but it won't be as great and the second and, thing of course is your assets have, have also grown appreciably so if you know I look at where I was at 60 if I'd croaked at 60, I've, at that point, yeah, I've got a 15-year-old daughter. There are a few problems there. Um, I've still got a fairly hefty mortgage. There are certainly problems there. Um, I've got a working wife. That's some, But I've also got, you know, a, a, a truckload of money in my super fund that wasn't there before. So, to me, life insurance is how much you need if something happens to you to take care of the people you love until the day they are going to die.
0: And, and yeah, and just to clarify, how much
1: you've got an asset.
0: I agree with you. I don't think that the need for cover is the same um, because the, also the other thing is you're closer to retirement age, so your loss of income is you know, considerably less. You don't have 20 years of, of working age. You've got five years of working age.
1: I, I've always worked on the philosophy. You see, in Australia, we don't have death duties. And, and that makes things a lot easier. If my wife and I can afford to retire today, comfortably afford to retire, that means we've got enough money for the two of us to get through potentially another 20 or 25 years. If I die, she's still got the same amount of money. She's loaded.
0: She's better off. She, she doesn't have yeah. a mouth to feed so, so
1: We don't need to put our assets at risk paying high insurance premiums to make her ultra-wealthy if I die versus just really, really, you know, more financially comfortable than she was when I was around. Now, you know, there's also the philosophy we don't want to tempt them. Um, (laughs) My wife has a daze. But, but, you know, if you can afford to retire in Australia, the need for life insurance, the need is pretty much zero. Doesn't mean to say you don't want to keep it for other reasons. But once you've yeah. got enough money for two people to survive the next 25 years, then if one of you goes, the other person doesn't need a boost of money. There's more than, you know, if there's enough for two, there's more than enough for
0: one. So I, you know. That's and, right. And and, and and we talk to our clients and, you know, I do this, I do this graph. Our average client's 33 and I say, look, you're probably going to buy a house and upgrade because yeah. you're in a shy, and that's what we that's what we tend to do. And the debt will increase but you're getting closer to retirement. So, that retirement um, also, the the replacement of income that we think about is actually reducing because we don't need to replace it as long. So, there are a whole number of factors that come into like, you know, how long someone should keep it for, you know, how much cover they should have, how do we structure it. And and at the end of the day, I always I always look at, you know, other people's advice and I say like, at the end of the day, one thing I'd love to see better as, as advisors and I kind of get a bit grumpy that we kind of, and, and I'm not saying you're doing this by any stretch of the imagination, but we kind of look at the other, other advisors and say, oh, I wouldn't do it that way, so they did it wrong.
1: So, no, no one's just wrong. Calm you know, down. Anyone <laughs> who needs insurance is better off having talked to an advisor because they've got more generally than when they started. Um, I, I just think, first of all, I've got to say life insurance, well, here's an idea for you. I, I never recommend a summer short. You know, I have never advised a client to buy anything. And 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 that's a very different
0: philosophy. And help me understand. You've asked them, hey, what what's the level you want?
1: Uh, a little no, bit more sophisticated no, no, than, that, but... than that. Deeper than that. We certainly use our experience to make sure they're getting something that works. First of all, um, I, I have enormous problems with the push to use a needs analysis for products like TPD and critical illness trauma insurance. I, I think that's an absolute joke because. Um, until you know the the question I have asked so many people um at a regulatory um level is, okay, if I'm going to do a user needs analysis to figure out how much TPD someone needs, how long do I estimate they're going to survive their disability?
0: Sorry, just to clarify your 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 you know frustration is more from a regulatory point of view saying hey it's required versus
1: you can't use a needs analysis for an unknown and
0: and you know
1: the reality is that if i'm totally, if i'm tpd for a year and then i die i need a lot less money than if i'm tpd and i live 40 years right that's just common sense so um, do you
0: have a concern with advisors having needs analysis? No, I practice? have a
1: concern with a regulatory regime that, that pushes people into having to do it because what that actually does then is open the door for lawyers to come in after the event and say you shoulda, woulda, coulda. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because if, if you're using the philosophy that most of us are taught to use for a TPD, then one in 20 of our claims potentially that might be catastrophic are completely underinsured. And, and not because the advisor's done anything wrong. It's just they haven't used worst-case scenario. You know, read, you want to read a book called um, The Butterfly on the Diving Bell, I think it's called, and, and it's about a French guy who had a massive stroke. Um, he, he, he was thought to be in a coma for years, and they found out he, he actually, his brain was working through all that time, but he couldn't communicate. And then they realised that he could actually, he had control over one eye and 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 he started communicating by blinking. And this guy wrote a book by blinking, you know, out sentences to a friend once they figured out how it was all going to work. Now, um, he was, uh, I think they made a movie on it. He was still alive 25 years later. You know, now he needed round the clock, um, 24-7 care Otherwise, he
0: drowns in his own spittle. Um, and, so, and so, you know, just, just, sorry, bring it back to your process and the way you d- do it in your business. Um, help me understand how you're tackling it. Okay. So, from a regulatory point of view, let's just, you know, it is what it is then, and we can, we, can, we can deal with that. But from your business, like how are you thinking about that stuff?
1: Okay. So, first question I, I ask everyone is do we have an unlimited budget for your, for your insurance? No. No. no, no. <laughs> yeah. Funny about that. Um, you know, my my professional opinion is they're going to say no, but you also need them to say it because that's the first part that, that enters my client notes at the end of the day, right? And then I explain, well, what that means probably is that we're actually going to have to compromise somewhere on, on what you actually buy because unless you have an unlimited budget, it's really next to impossible to buy everything you could possibly need if worst case hits you, right? So then we, we talk now, life insurance. Um, life insurance is, is very, very easy to, to use a needs analysis and do a proper calculation um, on the basis that, one, we, we have a very firm definition for death, right? There's very little grey there. If you can fog the mirror, then you haven't died. Yes, we have terminal illness benefits, but basically the definition is you've got to be... Yeah, you're dead. Base, yeah. Right? So so we have a defined event. We know how long you're going to be dead for and and we know what your current situation is and what we need to work towards. So that's fine. So then we get to, to total and permanent disability and, for instance, I'll open that discussion by saying, what's going to happen to you? And people will say, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, how badly disabled do we need to judge this on? And they go, well, I don't really understand. And I say, well, you know, for starters, if you're gonna be totally and permanently disabled, how long are you gonna survive? Because your life insurance will kick in once you die. And we know you've got enough life insurance to look after your family. So we only need enough TPD to look after you. But if you're gonna live 40 years, then it's a very different need to, if you're gonna die in three months time and we just pay the life insurance under a terminal illness claim. Um, The second question is how badly disabled are you? You know, are you going to be able to feed yourself? Are you gonna be able to clothe yourself? Are you gonna be able to go to the toilet? Are you gonna be able to stop yourself from drowning in your own spit? Or do you need someone sitting by your bed 24-7? Because if I need to give you 24-7 care, that's probably going to cost minimum $300,000 a year. And if you live for 40 years, well, we're up for $12 million bucks before we start. And, yeah, we can put that down. And the
0: there point. are 12 insurers that we can do a million dollars across all 12. <laughs> well, we can't because they <laughs> limit that financially across
1: the industry. So yes. let's say for me to cover worst-case scenario, I can't do it. I say the second part is, if I tell you you need a million bucks and, and you do have a catastrophic event, but you're not gonna die, well, I'm gonna get lawyers knocking on my door saying, you stuffed up here, they needed a lot more. And, and that's the reality. But people have got to realize that they don't have to do the wrong thing to get nailed. And you know, it's, it's, you've got to cover as an advisor. You've got to look after your, your clients but you've also got to look after yourself.
0: And oh, 100% and and they're, they're learnings that, you know, I I yeah. learned pretty early on that, you know, I had a client of mine, um, double pay premiums with a second policy that was personally owned. We didn't take over the policy. We didn't really know about policies and they came back to me and said, oh, I've been paying double policies, uh, premiums. And I said, well, it's been coming out of your bank account like what are you talking about? You should have cancelled that policy. Um, and then they decided that you know that we we should have you know magically known about this. And and at the end of the day, the outcome was I just I just said here's the years worth of those premiums. <laughs> I'm done. Um, and and it came out of my pocket, even though we weren't at fault. And so you know, that, fortunately, it wasn't like a claim. It wasn't you know millions of dollars. But that that was a good learning from me, and my business, to go. You know what? Insurance is such high risk. When it yep. comes to the advisor, insurer, client relationship that I either need to get out of this and not do insurance advice or I need to go all in and really dive in and make sure our processes and and everything's really, um, you know, well-documented. We've got really good systems and processes. But, but I also hear you say, you know, they asked me about tax returns even though that was never done, that was never required um, and they still you know took you on that because they're looking back and going well you know maybe you should have done all these extra processes that weren't the done thing that weren't required and so now i go okay what are all these things that you know are going to be in the future that i need to think about that i need to build in today just in case they come in understanding your experience what would you say to a a new advisor or an advisor running a business like me What, what would you tell me I've got three advisors in the business. We've been, I've been an advisor for 10 years and we, we help you know, hundreds of clients a year.
1: Number one is never tell anyone how much to buy. And, and that's where we're coming back to. So TPD for instance, right? I'll get out the needs analysis because I need to fill it out. And I'll say, I've got to do this for worst case scenario. So let's say you live 40 years to average life expectancy. Let's say you can't wipe the dribble off your own mouth. We need to put in 12 million bucks
0: right? But, but, but hold on, I'll just, I'll just push back on that. But isn't that what advice is? Isn't that what ca- they're coming to us? Oh, sure.
1: But, but then you smile sweetly and say, well, the only problem is, one, you could never afford $12 million. Two, you can't get it anyway, right? The most you can have is $2 million. And then I say, you've got to understand that everyone who buys TPD off me, you've already said you don't have an unlimited budget. Mm. right? You're going to look, we're going to be looking at life insurance for you. We're going to be looking at critical illness for you, which I think is crucial. We're going to be looking at income protection for you. We're going to be looking at TPD for you. Would you call that policy critical? Yeah. Um, and, And we're going to be looking at the same things for your wife. We're not going to be able to buy everything you might possibly need. So what we need to do is figure out amounts of cover that you feel comfortable paying for that can bridge nasties, with a knowledge that we're never going to be able to cover worst-case scenario. What I'm going to look at for your TPD is I'm going to show you what $2 million worth of cover is going to cost. I'm going to show you what a million and a half is going to cost. I'm going to show you what a million is going to cost. I'm going to show you what half a million is going to cost, and we are going to look at that in conjunction with everything else I'm going to show you, and we are going to figure out what within your budget works best in an overall scenario.
0: Yeah, I mean that's really interesting. For me, I look, we've got a regulatory environment that's really interesting. I'm at the very beginning, 35, plan to be here for a really long time to come um, and, and hearing this idea of like don't tell anyone what to buy, I kind of push back and go, well, that's kind of what most people come to me for. It's product selection and advice around level of cover because most people have no idea. So when most people have no idea they want guidance. And so so I guess that philosophy of don't tell anyone what to buy is kind of I, I totally understand why it's come about from a kind of an, an idea of I don't want to get sued. But I guess my pushback is we can manage those risks and and I appreciate, you know, I'm this young kid saying, oh, she'll be fine in the future. I, I appreciate I'll get sued in the, in the future for something I've never done uh, or I didn't do anything wrong. But, but we can kind of manage these risks of going, hey, this is what we think. This is how we think it. But at the end of the day, I don't know what's going on. Here's statistics on if you're quadriplegic, Zurich does a cost of care that says it's 11.3 mil. We can't get that and we're, we're not going to cover that. We're still giving
1: guidance, right? I'm not going to let the guy, if, if he's got a lot of debt, I'm not going to let him say, well, you know, who gives a shit? That's, that's not the way it works. What we have is indicative premiums. And within those indicative premiums, then we start talking about what you might actually want within affordable structures that can do a reasonable job. So if someone says to me, oh, geez, this is expensive, um, you know, $50,000 worth, I'll say, well really? You know, mm. you're not planning on being disabled at all, really, are you? Right? Let's think about this properly in con, in the context of what you need. You know, I would be thinking as a minimum, you know, if you're TPD, you want to get rid of your debt, blah, blah. blah. So we're still talking them to a point mm. where they're making, but but at the end of the day, we'll be always giving options. So, so you know, um, do you want the mortgage plus... Some additional money on top of your income protection, or or do you want to scrub the extra on your IP?
0: That's you right, and save you know seven hundred bucks a year for for option you know. C. yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense.
1: They will be saying to me, you know, I'm gonna I'll choose the five hundred and thirty thousand dollar option, not the six hundred and fifty thousand dollar option, please. And I'll say, are you sure? Yes, my SOA will then say. Um, we discussed the need for TPD. I showed you worst case scenario. You know, you've already said you can't afford everything you might possibly need. Um, in the context within your insurance budget, you prioritise critical illness a little higher than than total and permanent disability. After yeah. we talked through, you instructed me to apply on your behalf for five hundred and thirty thousand dollars worth of TPD, on the basis that it would do the following. You understood that in doing so there were circumstances yeah. in which you'd be but, but so yeah that
0: makes we're sense still yeah getting and
1: to a very similar point and and I'm not letting them do something dumb right mm. the same token if someone says I'll have two million dollars worth of TPD and no trauma I'm gonna say well oh, let's let's discuss this shave off this and out here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you yeah know, that makes and, sense. And, and and so we're still getting to that same thing. And so what I'm saying is basically My philosophy when I go back to a client after that first meeting is I've got a lot of options, right? So income protection, you know, a 30-day option and a 90-day option. I don't get anyone buying 30-day options unless they're very young. So a lot of your guys would be buying them. But once you get to 45 or 50, a 30-day waiting period on income protection is a joke mm. um, in terms of the value for money. So, yeah, that's you know, right. Yeah. We're always giving these options and, and at the end of the day, we're trying to work the options into what the client deems to be affordable in the yep. best possible way. And, you know, one of the other questions that we then come back to with this whole step versus level is, um, you know, are you better off buying $200,000 level or $300,000 stepped? Well, if you have a $400,000 need, that's a tough question. Yeah, you know, critical illness, I always put in a base of stepped where I can to cover medical requirements because my sorry, philosophy- A base of, of
0: level, do you mean?
1: Yeah. Oh, sorry. What yeah, did I sorry. Say? You yeah. said a base of stepped, yeah. yeah. Sorry, level. Because yeah. my philosophy is critical illness, 85% of claims are cancer right? So it's cancer insurance with some other stuff thrown in. Another 10% of heart events. Heart attacks either kill you or you recover pretty well generally. Um, You know, bypasses, a lot of people come out of them feeling better than than ever. So it's it's cancer insurance. And cancer is this insidious disease that you don't get the clearance for five years, Mm, typically. So, you know, cancer, do you want to do it the government way? Which is by world standards, fantastic but it's not as good as private care, hmm. you know, but private care costs. And I say, look, if you're – what I want is for you to be able to make the best decisions for you and your family about your medical care without having to um, attack your savings. So what I want is for you to be able to pay those, those cancer costs to a reasonable degree for as long as possible. So I put that at a level premium through to 70 where I can yeah, and yeah. Then no, that, we,
0: that makes sense.
1: Yeah, then we build on top of it, we stepped. Um, so we try to find the balance between how much cover we can start with within the affordable structure versus how much cover they – you know, it's it's always a juggling act. But at And that's right.
0: And, and the way we think about it as, as our business is, hey, this is kind of what we think and this is how we think it and this is why we think it. I don't pay your premiums, you do. <laughs> so you'll make a decision. You'll either say, yep, Phil, I agree. Oh, I don't want any of it or let's change it and then we talk about that.
1: I think one of the other things too is, you know, w- w- my basic philosophy and, and I've never really heard this from too many places but, you know, to me, insurance, um, it's a risk management tool that has one purpose and that's to cover off on the potential for events that we can't afford to cover ourselves. Yes. Right? And, and when that happens... Insurance allows us to pass that risk to an insurance company that can afford it because of the communal nature of their pots. Um, but you don't insure things you can afford. And that's, you know, my philosophy, for instance, with a difference between a 30- and a 90-day waiting period. Everyone can afford that extra two months without a benefit. They really can't because everyone typically has a drawdown on their mortgage, they've got credit cards. If they can't afford those two months, they can't afford premiums.
0: Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, that moderators.
1: makes sense. So, so, so yeah. why pay a shitload of money to just get paid in months two and three? I think save, you know, reduce your premium and premiums are typically 40% cheaper on a 90-day wait. Yeah, so I mean- pay for it, that but two months think Use it to buy more trauma. Use it to buy more TPG. Get yeah, I mean, when, when I hear rate.
0: you say this stuff, I, I kind of also just think, well, you also just um, maybe- taking a, a single stroke for, for everyone. Um, majority of our policies are 90-day. So I, I, I agree with you but a lot of what we do is we ask our clients, hey, how long can you survive without, without an income? And, and again, back to data, I always try and think about Can we just bring this back to actual data? Most Australians can't survive without an income for more than 30 days. Statistically oh, speaking, and so I, I agree. You know, I, you know, I, I'm on thirty days because I just took it out when I was really young. And it's long level premiums. So I'm not going to change it, so yeah, no, I don't, I don't need to. Um, but and we ask our clients, how long can you survive without an income? Because if you can survive, you know, 120 days, 90 days is totally fine and reasonable, but. But it's also like again, it's kind of like that back to saying no one should do 90 days, or oh, sorry, 30 days, because it's 40% extra premiums. Well, for younger clients, it's actually it's not that great of no. increase in costs, um, and also they're they're really young in their career, and and it and it's again back to that advice going, who are you sitting in front of, and what's good for them and then getting their feedback educating them and understanding how this stuff works and go like so for our clients you know sometimes i don't like doing 90 days because i say to them if you keep paying your premiums it's going to take you got to claim outside of 25 years to be worse off if you claim in the next 25 years you're actually better paying the you know extra 300 bucks a year for a 30 day waiting period or other clients, it's like it's 11 years so if you claim after 11 years, you're saving money from then on, just do 90 days. Um, it is, you know, it's it's the nature of advice. Everyone's different kind of thinking about the clients and going, we've got to bring in our philosophies, we've got to be bringing our way of thinking and kind of educate clients in kind of how we see the world because at the end of the day, they've come to us to help give them advice um, and as long as we are, you know, thinking about them and thinking about what's reasonable for them, for some clients 30 days, absolutely makes sense. For other clients, 90 days absolutely makes sense. Um, and I agree with you, majority of the clients are 90 days... I'm showing them the cost of both. Yeah, 100%.
1: Right? I'm allowing them to make a value judgment. Now, here's an interesting one for you. If you've got a 35-year-old on a step premium, and I'm sorry, this isn't the new product, so, so my research here is old. But if you've got a 35-year-old on a step premium, right, how many, how many claims... Of three months or longer, does that person need to make up until the age of 65 when their income protection pretty much disappears, how many claims does that person have to make to just get back the additional premiums they'll pay over that period? White collar.
0: don't know. How many?
1: About five and a half on average. If you're blue collar, you've got to make 11 separate claims to make up the extra premiums with what you'll receive in months two and three. Now, you know, when you start looking at numbers like that long-term, it makes no sense. If I've got a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old, absolutely 30 days because 40% premium difference is in dollar terms, bugger all. Mm. But when the premiums start to bite, if you don't put them on level, and, and sorry, I come back, That's... I totally agree with you, with your philosophy, with someone that age, put them on level. Mm. I, I do agree. But when you've got a 45-year-old, and you sort of look at it and you go, okay, what are the odds of you having four separate claims of three months or longer?
0: That's right. It's, it's really 20. low. Yeah, I agree. And that's where, it's, again, it's all just comes down to data and numbers. Yeah, and like, absolutely. And having a philosophy of going, well, you're going to claim four times, it doesn't make sense. And, yeah. and for me, my clients, I'm talking to a 25-year-old and saying, well, the, the differential, if you don't get you know eight grand for two months, like the extra premium is barely anything. You're gonna have to not claim, like, so you're gonna have to not claim for 25 years. Some clients, like, it's really a long way away before if there is no claim, you're better yeah. off. And so it's really, like, so th- you know, really, it's only like one claim in their policy or two claims for the life of their their um, policy will they pay itself back and so that's where it's, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing and again I just go back to as long as you've got a philosophy as long as it makes sense and it's sound and you're not doing it of going how do I you know get the outcome I want by communicating x y and z but going here's some data at the end of the day insurance is all about statistics and so it's about measuring those statistics communicating what the likelihood of certain things are and then empowering the client to make that decision. You know, I'm running out of time. I'm single single parent. Yeah. I got to pick up my kids, so we are running out of time. So I got two questions for you. When do you get a chance to do your emails during the day?
1: Oh God, I'm hopeless Adam. them. Um, I, I try and just look at them once a day. I, I'm, yeah. You know, I've I've got uh, an automatic um, uh, response set up, which says, "I'm really sorry, I'm 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 busy today. Um, I'm not going to be able to immediately answer your emails." I hope to look at them this afternoon, but it mightn't be until tomorrow, right? Yeah. And, and and people just get that, and you know, I'm sorry.
0: That's that's just how it is. It's it's like my voicemail. It's don't don't leave a voicemail. Just send me an email because that's the best way to get onto me. Um, and what's one interesting hobby that you have?
1: I've just come back from a week's golf in Scotland. Funnily enough, with some MDR teammates. Um, right. Not good what enough. What course? To make it a taxi St Andrews? Is that- <laughs> um, we stayed in St Andrews, but we didn't get to pay the old course. We played a lot of, we played Troon, we played Turnbury, we played Kings Barnes, um, Carnoustie, Carnastie. It was blowing 60 miles an hour wind. Um, but, you know, again, this is, I talked before about getting involved with other advisors. Um, I've now got this fantastic network of, of like minded people from around the world, and,
0: and mm. we get together. Amazing. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a great chat. Thanks for not Quick. cutting me off after 20. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it on to them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor, and I'll see you in there.